everyone. Welcome to our brand new podcast show for the love of books, featuring indie and small press authors who bravely navigate the treacherous waters of independent publishing. I will be your host, Emma, and we're going to have a blast as we move forward to opening up the USA on July 4th. It is my pleasure to present to you author Scott Rutherford, who published his debut novel, Danny's Inferno in September of 2020. Scott has an extensive nonfiction writing background prior to switching to fiction. Hello, Scott. Come Hi, on. Emma, thank you. I found out that you're studying French. Comment ça va? Ah, ça va bien, merci. Vous? Oh, moi bien, moi très bien. Formidable. <laughs> <laughs> I like your one-line teaser ab about your debut novel, Caught Between a Dead-End Street and a Burning Bridge. Have you ever felt that way? Caught between a dead-end street and a burning bridge. Oh, gosh. Uh, you know, I think I think we've all felt that way a time or two where we just, <laughs> you, you know, as human beings, we tend to get ourselves in some awful messes. And as often as not, it's our own fault. <laughs> much and, i do have and, to agree <laughs> um especially you know navigating our younger years uh it, it would be a truly rare person that didn't burn a bridge or two that they wish that they hadn't yeah <laughs> i do agree how has your nomadic lifestyle moving between three different states influenced your writing career oh uh, you know um i mean growing up we didn't uh we weren't in one place for a long time. We did move a lot. And uh, gosh, how did it influence my writing? I, I guess um, I learned to observe a lot, you know, and in moving around a lot, you don't necessarily make as many real long-term or deep friendships as, as maybe other people do. And so for me, you know, I, you know, I didn't have a lot of real close friends. So, I mean, I spent a lot of time just kind of watching people and learning. And I think, um, I like to think that comes out in, in my writing and that uh, hopefully it's realistic in depicting the way that people are, the way that people kind of interact and behave. Um, other than that, gosh, I, I, I've never really thought about how moving around a lot um, affected my writing. Um, has it I guess maybe shown in the subjects of your writings? Do you like use, um, I don't know, in travel writing or stuff like that? I sometimes use my travel to, you know, use in locations when I set my stories in different locations. Um, yeah, actually, that, that's, a, that's a good question. Um, this book is actually set in Northern California in 1991. And one of the reasons that I chose that is because I was in California during that time. I moved there from, from Shreveport, Louisiana with uh, everything that I owned in a duffel bag. I had a bus ticket and about 80 bucks. And, um, and I, I hadn't really packed any warm clothes because it, it was California, right? I mean, the, I was 19 years old. And as far as I was concerned, I was moving to a beach. Um, <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't realize that it does get cold in Sacramento. And in that year, they had record low temperatures and uh, it got down to like, gosh, 18 or 19 degrees and it snowed a little bit, which was, was a big thing for California. Um, but I actually incorporated that little tidbit into 
into the novel in, in a very small way. But, uh, you know, I just remember showing up in California with, I don't even think I had a long sleeve shirt and uh, 18, 19 degrees. So fortunately it did, it did warm up fairly quickly, but it, but it was cold there for a little while. So how did the switch come about from your extensive nonfiction writing uh, a lot of it Christian-based, right, from what I understand from your background. Well, you know, it's, it's, it's a good mix. I do have a lot of faith-based writing, but um, also a lot of just regular ju journalism, a lot, of, uh, a, lot of, a lot of human interest type journalism. Um, I worked for quite a while for a, uh, a family of small uh, hyper-local papers that you know, they would use me more than anything for, for human interest type stories. And so I did a lot of those in Louisiana and Texas. Um, as far as uh, switching to fiction, it was really kind of a natural thing for me because I started with fiction. I, I fell in love with writing by writing stories. Um, journalism was kind of the kind of a detour, if you will. It, it uh, was something that I did kind of because I could and I kind of doors opened for me to to make a living as a writer and so I did that um but really I mean I came back to fiction because my son challenged me to and um he said to me one day he said dad for years you've written all of these things that you've been hired to write whether it's journalism or advertising um pieces those kinds of things and you've been doing it for years but you kind of put the stuff that you love to do to the side and you you need to think about getting back to that and doing what you love to do. And um, so, you know, it's amazing what your kids will teach you. And, All the time, which is and, good. And my son, who was a young adult at the time, I think he was, he was still finishing up with college at the time. But, but it really was his challenge more than anything else that uh, really kind of put me on the path to writing Danny's Inferno. Danny's Inferno. And what specifically inspired this novel? Any specific moment that spurred off the entire story or? Uh, yes, um, it, it's, it draws heavily on the parable of the prodigal son um, out of the Bible, out of the book of Luke in the Bible. And it actually started as a series of bedtime stories. I was working with um, juvenile delinquents. This is before I wrote professionally at all, but I mean, uh, wrote a lot as a hobby back then. Uh, but it started as kind of a series of bedtime stories that I just kind of made up based on the parable of the prodigal son. It, you know, it's, it was kind of neat. I mean, you were kind of these tough kids, um, teenagers, you know, 16, 17, 18 year old kids. Um, but they, they got to the point where they really wanted their bedtime story. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and so, after I had done that, I mean, gosh, every once in a while, I would kind of put a step sheet together or write out an outline and kind of think about, well, maybe I would write this, but, you know, it just, it, it, it kind of was in there with a whole lot of other ideas. Mm -hmm. um, but something, something hit me one night when I was playing with it uh, here, here, right before I started. And I changed the main character from a prodigal son to a daughter. Okay. And it, when I started doing the step sheet and putting it together that way, it took a story that was pretty good and kind of strong to a story that was so strong that I had to tell it. 
um, it just changed changing the character up really, really changed the whole dynamic of the story. And, um, and, and that made it something that I just really felt compelled to share with the world. And tell us a little bit about your MC Danny. So was there a real person maybe that you modeled her after or what is she like in the book? Well, um, in the book, she's a guitar prodigy and uh, she comes from a, from a, a Christian home, um, a strong Christian home. Her mother has passed away. Um, her father's in the military. He's, he's um, fighting in Desert Storm at the beginning of the book. Um, I would not say she's based on a single real person. She's kind of a conglomerate of, of several others. And, um, some of them have asked me not to share that. So I won't, okay, but, yeah, don't. <laughs> but, but, but yeah, she's kind of a, a conglomeration of, of several real people. And then a whole lot of make-believe thrown in there to, uh, to make sure that, you know, she can't be identified directly with one person um but you, you know she she has this amazing talent she, she mm -hmm. plays the guitar and uh the, the way the idea for the main character came about i mean this is when i was initially telling the story before she became female is i'd had a conversation with a friend of mine who's also i'm a, I'm a drummer and he, he's a mm -hmm. guitar player and so we were talking music and we were talking specifically about how um in the early nineties, how grunge music kind of showed up and all of a sudden everything that was there before the whole, uh, we call it hair metal. Now at the time it would have been called glam rock or, or pop metal. There were different terms for it, but that whole sunset strip music scene just went away like overnight. And we got discussing about how many really, really good guitar players who had invested years in becoming really good all of a sudden found themselves out of work and the popular music sounded like something that really wouldn't have been, even made it as a garage band six months earlier. And, um, and so I got thinking that would be an interesting story setting for a story mm -hmm. to have somebody be just at the right, almost right at the top of their game, ready to mm -hmm. break it, break it big. And then all of a sudden just to have that whole world, collapse. That, that, that rug pulled right out from under them, right. Mm -hmm. Have it collapse. And so that's kind of where the idea for the character came from. Um, and like I said, uh, it was just one night as I was playing around with it that it occurred to me to to make the character a female instead. And uh, I think it made her a lot more, I think she's a lot more interesting character than, uh, than the one that I had before. <laughs> what was the biggest challenge in writing this, this novel? Um... Gosh, the biggest challenge really wasn't even so much in writing it. It was in getting myself emotionally and mentally to the place where I was ready to share it after I had written it. Oh. Writing it, I mean, the novel practically wrote itself. It was, okay. um, it was, it was a very, very easy novel to write. Of course, I'm an extensive, uh, extensive plotter. So, you know, mm -hmm. I, b before I write Once Upon a Time, you know, I have the story pretty much uh oh okay. pretty much together and, and not that things don't change along the way but uh but i i do enough enough plotting that really the writing itself is kind of the easy part it, at least in my experience 
So how did you overcome this challenge uh, to present this novel, this story to the world? What helped you overcome that reluctance? Well, for me, it was a, it was, it was a lot of prayer. You know, it was a, yeah. uh, you know, and just a lot of uh, really kind of taking a deep breath and saying, you know, what's the worst that could happen? You know, mm-hmm. the worst that could happen is nobody will want to publish it, in which case I, I still have the option to, to self-publish. And, and, I, and I know we're in a forum for independent authors, so I, I don't at all mean to make it sound like self-publishing is a, is a bad option. And it's actually one that I very seriously considered from the, from the start. Because I, I, I knew that I knew that my novel deals with some things um, that would make it a little bit of a tough sell in the Christian market. Mm-hmm. And, and so I, I went in knowing there was a real distinct possibility that, that I would that I would have to publish it myself. And um, I was very pleased, though. I, you know, I gosh, I only sent out a dozen queries before I received an offer. So, only. Whoa. And yeah, the first first set of queries that I sent out, mm-hmm. uh, I I was just getting ready to send out a second set when I when I when I got an offer and uh, or or a request to see the rest of it anyway. The actual offer came later, but uh, um, but yeah. So I mean, that's it, it, and I realize how rare that is. It and, is. You know, it's I mean, very it's, rare. Yeah. And, and, and I don't have any any illusion about it me being any better of a writer than anybody else. I think you know a lot of a lot of the time those things are just a matter of the right manuscript falling into the right hands at the right time in the right place. And uh, and fortunately, by the grace of God, all of those things uh, kind of came together at the same time. And uh, um, the folks at Touchpoint Press got a hold of it and and liked what they saw. And kind of the rest is history as far as that goes. Awesome. So what are the major takeaways from your novel? Well, the, the major takeaway that I hope that people people get, um, much like the takeaway from the parable of the prodigal son, mm-hmm. is that the father loves you. And it doesn't matter how badly you've screwed up, how badly, mm-hmm. what how bad of the situation you put yourself in. It, you know, it doesn't matter if you've gone out and committed terrible crimes or if the worst thing you've ever done is is took a cookie out of the cookie jar that you weren't supposed to god loves you Mm -hmm. and uh and the point of this book of course like the parable it uses a human story to illustrate that is just that a father's love endures and uh you know father's love is strong and a father's love continues um even when we put ourselves in, in in bad situations and even even when we turn away from or run away from those relationships, mm-hmm. that love that love remains, or, or at least it should. I mean, I, I also recognize, you know, there are fathers out there certainly who who are less than ideal and who whose love is very conditional. But uh, um, the love of God is not conditional, and and He's He's the Father that. Uh, that's going to love us no matter what we've done. So what do you feel you've done right with this novel? And what would you have done differently? (laughs) (laughs) That's a good one. What do I think that I did right? And what would I do differently? Um, 
you know, I, I would say as far as what I did right, uh, going right back to the plotting, I spent a lot oh. of time figuring out who my characters were before I even started the writing. And I spent a lot of time, you know, kind of figuring out where the story was going to go. Um, now, it was a little bit easier in this case, because again, it's it's based rather loosely on the parable of the prodigal son. So I kind of, I kind of had a working outline before mm -hmm. I started. Sure. Um, as far as things that I would do differently. Um, mm -hmm. You know, a lot of that, I, I would have educated myself about the business a lot, business of writing a lot more than I did. Okay. Um, I would have educated myself about, you know, what you need to do to promote yourself, what you need to do to make people aware before the book comes out. Um, mm -hmm. Sure. Um, and of course, my book was released in the middle of a pandemic. So we were all trying to figure out um, publishers, authors, everybody trying to figure out how to navigate a very different set of rules. Um, within the writing, one of the things that I would have done differently is uh, I use a lot of uh, a lot of like italics to show where a writer is, okay. is thinking. Mm -hmm. <coughs> Excuse me. And I found in doing readings that can be a little bit difficult because, of course, when you're reading out loud, the uh, the, the hearers can't see, can't hear the italics. <laughs> so, you know, there's a few things like that. It's it, it is funny because the first time I actually did read my book publicly, I hadn't even thought about that. Right. It, and it became clear, okay, I need to I need to change some things and give myself a version that I can read to people, mm -hmm. so that it. it, it It'll be clear when the character's thinking rather than speaking. Um, otherwise, she'll seem even more precocious than she is. Oh, <laughs> you know, like, like all of us, um, she does have some, or hope, hopefully all of us, she does have some filter uh, between what she thinks and what she says. So what have you learned about yourself from writing this book? You know... I think uh, it's it's interesting because I see myself in most of the characters of this book, okay. and the one character that I really saw myself more than any other is there's a a um, a youth minister kind of worship leader character in the book who is maybe a little heavy on the rules and a little light on the relationships. Okay. And I could see a lot of myself at that age in that character where sometimes I focused a little bit more on trying to get people to behave and a little bit less on, uh, on really being there for them when, when things got rough. And uh <laughs> You know, you know, it's amazing because our characters tend to make the same mistakes in life that we did. That we did. You know, and in, in like, like the main character, I mean, I spent a couple of years where I really didn't have a lot of communication with my dad. And it mm -hmm. wasn't because my dad didn't love me. It wasn't because really of anything even that he had done wrong in retrospect, although, you know, 18 year old me would have seen that differently, maybe, but uh you, you know, it's a, 
I'm not the first one to suggest it, but writing really is a therapy. And a lot of these people that we make up and we invent, mm-hmm. more often than not, there's a little bit of the writer in all of them. And that's whether it's the hero, the villain. <laughs> I mean, Absolutely. Absolutely. There's a little bit of us in, in, in all of those characters. And, and I think we get to see kind of the good, bad, and ugly of ourselves reflected in them. I would have to agree 100%. What's next for you? Uh, well, I'm finishing up, finishing up my degree and focusing on that. Right now, I have another year um, to get my French degree and then uh, uh, a little while beyond that to, to get a teaching certificate. I do have a couple of... Uh, couple of projects that I'm kind of stepping step sheeting out and kind of trying to decide which one that I want to write um and I probably will get started on something before the summer's over but I'm I'm debating between a sequel for Danny's Inferno and a couple of other um couple of other projects uh I really have in mind a series to write about high school students that would kind of follow uh the history of a high school and would you know start back mm-hmm. in the uh, kind of the kind of a history of an american teenager told in 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 the form of novels um starting in the 50s and in working its way toward present time and then i have a uh, a biblical fiction idea for a story set in ancient ephesus during the first century okay um, that would be a, a about a character who was a uh, um, was the son of a prominent silversmith in Ephesus, which in, in the Bible, in Acts chapter 19, there's a, there's a big, uh, big riot that the silversmiths caused because they're upset over um, some of the things that the church had taught. And uh, so it would kind of center around that event and would focus on the relationship between this silversmith's son and and a Christian uh, lady during that time. Okay. And where can people find you this summer in person? Are you going to be at any of the author's events, festivals, shows that are opening up? Some of them, not all of them. <laughs> well, I don't have anything on the docket right now, but uh, follow me on Facebook. And uh, certainly as those opportunities um become available if I'm if I'm able to I will I will take advantage of them um like a lot of independent authors I work full-time and in my case I I work full-time and go to school full-time so I'm I'm a little bit limited in uh in in the events that I can attend in in person anyway but uh but I, I certainly wouldn't rule it out if something came available and uh and I was and I could fit it into my schedule I certainly would do so and and events like these that are virtual and online, I'm always happy to, to be part of those. Excellent. So what sets you apart from other authors in this particular genre that you wrote this book in, the novel, your debut novel? Well, one of, one of the pieces of advice that I had always heard is write the book that you want to see on the bookshelf, but don't. And for me, a lot of, a lot of inspirational fiction, a lot of Christian fiction, really kind of shies away from dealing with the hard stuff of life. Okay. And, or, or if it does deal with it, it really deals with it with kid gloves. And especially given that this was based on the parable of the prodigal son, which if you read that, 
mm-hmm. and you make the picture in your mind of what's being being said, it's really not a PG rated story. I mean, this is this is a guy that gets himself in in some really good messes. And I kind of went there in my book, I think in mm-hmm. a little bit strong, stronger way than most Christian authors would. Um, now, I'm not the only one by any means. Um, Francine Rivers comes to mind as somebody who also deals with some some of these harder um, harder issues. And, and, uh, and I, I want to be clear. I mean, there's not a lot of graphic, uh, graphic sex or anything like that in the books, in my book, but I do deal with those issues, I think, in a more realistic way than a lot of Christian fiction that, oh. that I've read. And I deal with what I would consider the human condition in what I would consider a more realistic way than a lot of the other Christian fiction that I've read. Um, you know, I deal with the fact that, that being a Christian doesn't mean you don't struggle with things. Mm-hmm. Because I've... and really religion aside we're all i mean if you're if you're living life if you can if you can fog a mirror you're struggling with something um you know it's just it's part of life and uh and i try to make that very real with my characters and i and i think uh i i think that's one of the things that sets me apart And, and i've heard that a lot from readers i mean i i constantly hear People say, "Look, I never read Christian fiction, but I love this." Okay. And right. and and for me, that's been the greatest compliment because mm-hmm. the last thing that I wanted to do was to spend my life preaching to the choir, you know, and writing a book mm-hmm. that only only would appeal to Christian readers. Um, I think there's there's universal truth in there that uh, that people can enjoy really regardless of of what they believe. So. That's what I hope sets me apart anyway. Yeah. So how did the book launch go during the pandemic? You talked a little bit about it, and we all pretty much have been through this horror. So how did you, what did you do for your book launch? Well, you know, gosh, it was a series of, a series of fits and starts. Um. The, the first thing we had to do is we ended up having to move the book launch event we had planned back. We mm-hmm. had planned a fairly, fairly major event. Um, uh, music is a, is a big, plays a big role in the novel. Of course, mm-hmm. the main character is a guitar player and she gets involved with a band. And, and so there's an original song that's in the book mm-hmm. that I actually worked with a, a friend who, who's in a band and they recorded for us. Matter of fact, it's available as a as a free download for anybody who buys the book. But we had initially planned for our for our event to have uh, One True King, who is the band who who mm-hmm. recorded the song, to to do a concert. We were going to be outdoors. We were going to just do this as big as we could in the Saginaw area. But uh, it, of course, we had to stay distanced. And uh, then there was an issue where um, the I. I couldn't get copies of my book on time for the date that we had set. So we had, to, we had to move it back a month and it, it, you know, it wasn't the publisher's fault. It was, it was just a matter of a lot of printing had been backed up due mm-hmm. to the pandemic and people not being able sure. to work 
in normal. It, it, the pandemic has affected us all in ways that, you know, even if you'd told us ahead of time we were going to go through a pandemic, I don't think any of us could have imagined. Mm-hmm. Um, no. But, but so we ended up having to move it back so I could have copies of the book on hand. I, you know, I didn't want to have a book signing and not have any books. <laughs> and, um, it, and we did end up having uh, having John from One True King come and he did perform. And and, and that performance and, and my reading is there again, it's up on my Facebook page. But, but, uh, but it ended up being kind of a smaller, more intimate uh, type setting than, than what, what we might otherwise have done um, um, because we had to maintain the social distances and the masks and, and all of those things. Um, but, you know, I, you know, it's, it's, gosh, what an experience. So, I mean, I mean, those of us who have lived through this are going to have yeah. a story to tell. Oh, <laughs> you know? Each one of us, yeah. a different story to tell. It, right. Well, right. Well, Scott, would you like to read to us? Oh, I would love to read. I would love to read. And, uh, you know, I know we're uh, we're looking at about four minutes. Is that correct? Yes, that is correct. So I think I'm just going to start from the beginning and we're going to see how far we get. Because uh, one of the challenges I've had with this is reading passages. Notoriously, I read them differently every time and it ends up clocking in at different times. Okay. <laughs> so, We'll, we'll we'll get we'll start from the beginning and if I don't get to the end just you know wave me off or whatever. Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, Rio Flaco, California, Friday, January eleventh, nineteen ninety one. Smoke, sweat, and Aquanet assaulted seventeen year old Danny Grisigli as she opened the garage's side door. Doing her best to ignore the Motley Crew knockoff providing the noise. She stood tiptoe, scanning gaps in the jungle of teased hair for a glimpse of her best friend, Shelly. We shouldn't be here, she thought, if Vic finds out I'm dead, and if Daddy finds out. Some guy from last year's chemistry class backed into her, laughed, and offered her a joint. Danny shook her head, trying to ignore him as as he traced her figure with his eyes. She knew her floral jeans and button-up blouse weren't racy. What do I have to do to get them to stop, she thought. Do I have to dress like a nun? She kept her head down and elbowed her way to the corner where the band, Inferno, according to the double bass drumheads, struck up a sappy power ballad heavy on the ooze, ahs, and babies. Bobby Van Zee, Shelley's new boyfriend, kicked into the obligatory guitar solo, shaking his bleached mane and snarling for the crowd. Oh, wow, sweeping arpeggios. Danny rolled her eyes. Cliche much? But is that a less play- Polly's playing, she thought? No time to drool, Danny reminded herself. But that looks like a 68 sunburst. Shelly perched on the edge of a tattered couch across the stage, eyes glued to Bobby as she swayed in time. A paunchy guy with a bald spot at the crown of his mullet slouched on the other end of the couch. He inched closer, eyes alternating between the, she- the hem of Shelly's miniskirt and his watch. I told her not to wear that. Danny stepped between them, yelling over the music. She's with the guitar player. What guitar player? Ponchi reclined, giving Danny the once-over. Come on, Shelly, we gotta go. Danny tugged her by the elbow. But this is our song, Shelly said, just till it's over. If we get caught here, we're dead, Danny said, turning her back to Ponchi and snipping the collar of her shirt. 
Do you have any idea what Vic would do if I show up smelling like pot? Shelly rolled her eyes. It's not like he's your dad. Don't go there. Danny bit her lip to keep from tearing up. Besides, he's my boss. He's your brother, Shelly mouthed, smirking. What if someone from church sees us? I'll get kicked off the praise team. We'd never hear the end of it in youth group. Shelly laughed. Who's going to see us here? Paunchy scooched closer, leaning in. The song's crescendo drowned his words, but his meaning was clear. He drummed his fingers and jingled the Cadillac keychain, flashing his Rolex. Danny pulled Shelly off the couch, turning to face the man as the last notes faded. I don't know what you're selling, but we're not buying. Hey, Shelly, let's... But Shelly had already jumped up onto the stage, giggling and whispering into Bobby's ear. The two heads melded into one mass of bleach blonde hair until Bobby pulled away and winked at the rest of the band. You can be replaced, the singer said into the microphone, drawing laughter from the crowd as Shelly led Bobby outside by the hand. Danny took a second look at the singer. Vince Neil hair, Bon Jovi smile. He looked like he'd stepped off the pages of Hit Parader. There's no time to dwell on that of all things, she thought. I ought to just leave you here, she called after Shelly. Shelly turned in the doorway. Just, just five minutes. The door slammed and the couple was gone before Danny could answer. The partiers groaned their unanimous sentiment at the interruption. I wonder if they've seen that trick before, Danny thought. Jump, the singer hollered, looking desperate to stem the flow heading for the door. The bass player stepped behind a keyboard rig and started plunking out the opening riff to the Van Halen song as what was left of the band fell in. The 68 Gibson lay on the stage floor next to the amp, calling Danny's name. The guy has no idea what he's got. Danny looked at a wall clock. 4.30. And that guy's bad for Shelly, too. Bet you he wouldn't like it. She stretched out over the stage, snagging the guitar and strapping it on as the singer belted, I ain't the worst that you've seen. Sure ain't, Danny said, trying to catch his eye as she pulled the pick from between the strings, cranked the volume knob to make sure Bobby could hear from outside, and hit the fill leading into the chorus. The fretboard fit her hand like a buttered glove, and the amplifiers growled a warning. This is going to get dangerous. Danny locked in with the bass player through the chorus as if she'd been rehearsing with the band for months. The singer dropped his jaws as Mike hit the floor with a dull thud. By the time she nailed the finger tap solo, he'd retrieved it and managed to stumble through the rest of the song. Yep, exactly. Thank hey, you. That was nice. Right. Hey, that was exactly. <laughs> no problems right. with that. Thank you. Okay, before we thank do our parting shots, I would like to thank our sponsors of the show, Doc Shavant and Digital Quill Services for Writers with author Colleen Nye. Scott, can you give us your parting shots? My parting shots. Well, um, well, first of all, thank you everyone for listening. Um, you check the book out. I think you'll like it. And make sure to support um, independent authors and, and small press authors. Um, there's a lot of really good ones, good ones out there. And that's one of the, probably one of the coolest things that I've learned through this whole experience is just how many really great authors that nobody knows about yet are, are out there. And so thank so, you. Give it a shot. Buy independent books. <laughs> okay. And my parting shots are buy indie, read indie, and write indie. Keep your fingers on the keyboard and your butt in the chair. Thank you for listening. <laughs>